0: Looking together for the next few minutes at the book of John, John chapter 16. So if you'd like to open a Bible there, you'd probably be helped by being able to follow along John 16, 16 through 24. There are Bibles in front of you, those blue books, uh, pa- page 902. Page 902 is where we are as we continue a series in this section of John's gospel. Listening to Jesus prepare his disciples for his departure. We are now on day eight of the new year. How are your resolutions coming? I have to admit, as just kind of, I threw in the towel a long time ago on resolutions because I wasn't very good at changing in the short term. They say that most resolutions last for two weeks, so we're halfway there for most of us. I hope yours hold out longer than that, if, in fact, the change you want to see is good change. We need more than resolutions, apparently, in order to have effective and lasting change. That's what I've learned in my life. It's what you're probably learning in your life as we round the corner again to another year and maybe close to failed resolutions. We need more than resolutions. But what do we need for change? What do we need to change? How do we change? Well, our passage this morning helps us think about that. Helps us gear our minds and hearts towards the need and the ability to be transformed through what Christ has done. Look at John chapter 16. As we enter again this conversation between Jesus and his disciples and we think about our need for change. We'll start in verse 16 and I'm going to read through verse 18. Jesus says to his disciples, A little while and you will see me no longer. And again a little while and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while. And you will not see me and again a little while and you will see me and because I'm going to the father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Hope you find comfort in that. If you often open the Bible and you're like, I don't know what this is talking about. the Disciples felt that too. And through the work of the spirit, they came to understand more and you can too. So persevere and ask God for his help to help you understand his word when you open it. Jesus has been telling his disciples about his coming departure. And although Jesus has been clear that he is going away from them and going to his father, the disciples still don't get what he's trying to tell them. They are specifically in this text caught up on the words, a little while. It's repeated over and over again. For some reason, this is not registering with them. I'm not sure why it's not registering with them. It doesn't tell us why specifically. So we could wonder, is it because they're trying to figure out how long a little while is? Are they wondering, if it's only a little while, why would Jesus go away at all? What will it mean that they can't see him for that section of time? Couldn't they just go with him? Whatever their confusion They seem to want more information from Jesus. Jesus, what is the plan? How can we know more about it? In light of their confusion, Jesus graciously says, Guys, seems like you have some questions. Look at verse 19. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, Is this what you're asking yourselves? What I meant by saying, a little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. In typical Jesus fashion, he doesn't actually answer the question the disciples ask. But he answers a more important question that they didn't know to ask, but should have asked. You see, the disciples want to know How a little while will come and go. I think. How is it going to start? How's it? And when's it going to end? And Jesus says. Actually. I want to tell you what's going to happen. During the little while. He knows that's what they need. Because they don't need more information. They need transformation. And what he's about to do in a little while. Is going to transform them. Like the disciples, I think we often feel convinced that what we need is just more information. We simply want to know, Jesus, just just lay it out there. What's your plan for our life? Give me more information on what my circumstances will be or why the ones I'm in are the ones I'm in. Who will I marry? Where am I going to live? Am I going to die young? Am I going to die old? Give me more information. Jesus' priority is not usually on giving us that kind of information, but bringing instead transformation. He may use our circumstances to that end, but his aim is something other. He wants to bring change to our hearts. And just like the disciples, he tells us in this text how he's going to make that happen. Now, before we look at the transformation, which is going to be most of what we're thinking about this morning, the transformation Jesus says is about to happen, we need to know what happened in the time that Jesus called a little while. When Jesus says a little while, he is referring to his coming death, his resurrection, his appearance to his disciples, and then his ascension back to heaven. In this passage, All those things are in Jesus' view as he answers to the disciples. In verse 20 through 22, his death and resurrection are in view. In verse 23 to 24, his ascension is in view. This series of events that Jesus undertakes in this little while is what we often call the gospel. Jesus who came and died and rose again and returned to the Father for our life. Jesus tells us that in this our true transformation begins and happens in what he did. So this is the main idea of the passage in front of us. All that by way of introduction and getting us into the heart here. The main idea is that the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus brings life transformation. The death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Brings life transformation. Perhaps as I hold out to you that there is hope for life transformation. Perhaps you find yourself very interested in such a thing. Perhaps you've grown as a Christian a little out of practice in taking the gospel and bringing it to bear on your everyday life. Well, I hope and I pray that Jesus' words help us. Help us especially to understand the transformation he offers and receive it from him. There are two main transformations that the gospel brings that are addressed in this section of scripture. Two main transformation the gospel brings to our life. And so that's going to be the rest of my sermon. The first one is this. The death and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus' death and resurrection transforms our reality from sorrow to joy. Jesus' death and resurrection transforms our reality from sorrow to joy. Read with me verse 19 through 22. Jesus knew that that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you're asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice. And no one will take your joy from you. So how is it that Jesus describes the difference between the beginning of the little while... And the end of it, well, by what will change in the disciple's heart? That's how he describes the difference that a little while will make, how their hearts will change. Look at verse 20. You'll be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Verse 22, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. Whatever is going to happen in a little while is going to take the disciples through the entire spectrum of the human experience. They're going to have excessive grief, weeping and lamenting. But then they're going to ultimately have permanent joy, peace, security, contentment, gladness. And through the grief, the world will be celebrating. Jesus is talking about his death That's coming soon. In a few hours, he's going to be arrested, unjustly condemned, crucified, and buried in a tomb. People hated Jesus. And they did not believe that he was sent from God as he claimed. They killed him thinking they were doing the world a service. And once he was buried in that tomb, the disciples entered into grief. Thinking that when he went away, they would not see him again. But they would see him again. They would, because three days after being crucified, Jesus came out of the tomb in resurrection, and the sight of Jesus alive, though once dead, transformed the disciples' reality from sorrow to joy. I wonder if you heard about what happened last Monday on a national stage during a professional football game, when a Player abruptly collapsed from a heart attack. Teammates, spectators, maybe even some of you watching the game, viewers nationwide, instantly experienced a bitter dose of our universal reality. Life is not guaranteed, but death is. And when death comes to our loved ones, we react. We respond to the weight of the curse we live under. We respond in sorrow. Sorrow is the symptom that reveals what's at the core of our human reality. We are locked in the grip of death. And it's a grip we can't loosen. That's why we try to put death out of view. That's why our scientists right now are... Just laughably trying to, literally, the language being used is trying to come up with a cure for aging. (laughs) A cure for aging as if it's a a disease that can be removed by us, by medicine or people's intelligence. Our hospitals and our nursing homes are putting away our terminally sick. We do not want to feel the sorrow unless we have no choice. And why would we? Sorrow makes us think about a broken reality we cannot change. That is the reality that existed for hundreds of years. Up until the weekend in Jerusalem that Jesus is preparing for. In a little while. And only in a little while. A new reality would finally be possible. You see the whole human experience turns on the hinge of what Jesus did in those three days. Jesus says it will take him only a little while, although it will come at a great cost to him to bring us this new reality. An existence where death does not have the final word, but Jesus does. The Old Testament prepares us for it. It promises there's going to be a curse ender who comes. And Jesus comes and puts death to death. Death. He dies on a cross to satisfy the demands of death's curse that weigh on us. He takes away the judgment of our sin that brought death to the world. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ bring about a new age, a new reality, a transformation of the human experience where life is possible when once death was inevitable. And so Jesus says the implications of the change he's bringing are big. They're big for you. (laughs) Because of what he did, your sorrow can be turned into joy. And he gives this picture of a baby being born. Look at verse 21 again. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. How ironic that in the agony of his coming death, Jesus knew he was going to bring through it the joy of new birth. <laughs> the point of this illustration he gives that is that in light of this new baby, all suffering that preceded the baby being born is, is somehow forgotten. And for those of you who have watched babies be born or have ...given birth to babies or celebrated with loved ones. You know that. You know that experience. So he's not saying that there is no sorrow or sadness in this life. He's not saying that at all. But he is promising that it will one day be eclipsed by a greater, more joyful event. Because Jesus rose, he will return and finish what he started. And did you see... Did you see in verse 22... How extensive and solid and permanent that change will be. End of verse 22. No one will take your joy from you. Knowing that day is coming when Jesus returns for us and will surely come. This is why our joy can be invincible. Nobody. Nothing. No event. Can stop the resurrection from making us joyful in Jesus. Now, I know as I say that, that there are people in this room who are weighed down by sorrow today. I know we have a sister who went to her grandfather's funeral yesterday. We have a brother who is still wrestling with the departure of his father from whom he was estranged most of his life. We have brothers and sisters who feel pinned right now underneath the crush of broken bodies and broken hearts. We know what it means to weep and lament. To those of you who are weighed down by sorrow. Jesus knows your sorrows. He witnessed firsthand here on this earth. The colossal curse that pressed down people around him. In disease and demonic oppression and Faithlessness and slavery to sin. He witnessed it all. He felt the weight of it. He loved his friend Lazarus. And he wept at his grave when he died. He is with you in your grief. And he came to take it away. Your king, your savior, your brother, your friend, Jesus, made a plan to take away your sorrows. This is the Lord we worship, the liberator, the rescuer, the deliverer. He loves us. He gave his life to get us out of a reality that's defined by death. And in his person, he has everything necessary to make that happen. It's all with him. It's all in him. It's through him that he can do that for us. When Jesus answers his disciples in verse 20 and 23, he prefaces his answer with, Truly, truly, I say to you. He can tell them what's about to happen because he controls what's about to happen. He will inaugurate a new world order when he reigns as king over death. So when he says, truly, truly, I say to you, he is doing more than speaking. He is, in these words, initiating a sequence of events that will bring whole new realities into existence. The words of Christ Always match and describe what is. These are words to believe and trust and claim as truth. Even if in your life right now it seems sorrow is winning. Because of Jesus, your sorrows will have an end. Your sorrows are in the process of ending. I remember for myself seasons of sorrowful depression in which I thought that was my new reality. I couldn't remember what joy felt like. I doubted I ever would remember again. I remember praying over and over with the psalmist. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. If you find yourself there, hear what Jesus is saying to you. In a little while, he told his disciples, he would change reality. Lift the curse that brings sorrow Christian, that little while is over. He, he's already come. He's already come as the king to bring the kind of kingdom where people don't have to stoop as they trudge through this world. But we can be lifted and relieved as Christ takes our heavy loads. So whatever sorrow you feel today or tomorrow, remember that it is, as a child of God, a sorrow that is on its way out. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. I wonder if you are here and you've been skeptical about Christianity. Maybe you're even here because you've witnessed the joy Christians have that you know you don't have. What makes people like the disciples change from weeping at Jesus' death to boldly and joyfully talking about him as the crucified and risen Savior only a few weeks after their tears? Why would they hide in fear when he was crucified and then courageously die for him as martyrs? What causes Christians to go through hard things but still praise and trust God? I wonder if you're wondering that. Well, it's because the resurrection of Jesus happened. That's why. It was not a metaphor that we cling to for some vague sense of hope in our life. It was a historical event that altered everything we knew up to that point about humanity. Before Jesus, we all die. In Jesus, we now can all live. It's that monumental. But for you and me, the only way to step into that life is for Jesus to take your sin. In his death... He must die for you, and you must in turn surrender your life to him. There's no other way. We must accept that our sin deserves death and that the cross is where Jesus paid for our sins. We must believe that Jesus is the King and follow him wherever he leads us. There is no other way into the life he provides. In coming, Jesus brings a new reality and with it heart transformation. I want you to see that as Jesus says in a little while, I'm going to do something that brings a change to your heart as the disciples. I want you to transfer that to you, Christian, and to me and understand that changing our heart is primarily how Jesus changes our life. That's where the crosshairs of his providence, of his leading in your life, of his purposes, he's aiming at your heart. It's not the circumstances around your life first. Sure, he'll use those. But what he's after is change of the person. That's how he changes your life. Jesus' will is to change my heart and your heart and my life and your heart. Jesus intends to remove how death influences your thinking and our living and put life and joy in its place. In some ways, Jesus has already done this. He finished that work. And it's just for us to realize the benefits. In other ways, he's doing it day by day. Let me, tell you, let me demonstrate what I'm talking about. Our heart anxiety, that worry you feel, that, that keeps coming back around. Our heart anxiety is connected to death. In that the ultimate worry is that we will be lost and no one will be able to save us. Jesus says that's not true. He'll bring us even through death. So won't he bring us through lesser worries? Let me give you another example. Our sinful habits, those things we keep going back to, maybe our addictions, those are connected to death. In that when we sin, we say there is no power greater than the curse that locks us into patterns of disobedience. But Jesus... Brings a new and greater reality that means sin is not an unconquerable power in us anymore. He intends to change patterns of sin in us through his resurrection power. Jesus is aimed at transformation of our hearts. And if that's true, and it is true, what would Jesus have us to do in response? We'll receive his resurrection reality as true. That's what. Believe that sorrow and death as a permanent reality fully ended when Jesus died to take that from us. And rose to give us life with him into life forevermore. Believe it. Not a scent in the mind, but an agreement in the heart. That he is risen. And that has altered the course of our life Forever. Are you welcoming Jesus' resurrection life in your life right now? Are you living according to that reality? Are you putting that truth to work in all the various ways available to you? In your chronic sickness is the coming glory of a risen and remade body because of Jesus' power helping you trust Jesus through your bodily pain. In your fear of the future... Are you remembering that Jesus will not let go of your hand in this life, nor will his grip loosen on you as you pass through death? In your apathy to the things of the Lord and his word and your decision to pursue other priorities instead, have you forgotten that all of this will pass away, but our life with Christ will go on? There are broken things in this room. There are broken marriages. There are broken friendships. There are broken hearts. There are broken people. Jesus rose from the dead. And even if you are on the verge of ruining everything in your life, even if you're here and you feel like you've already ruined everything, Jesus can resurrect you. The gospel invites you to let go of your sin. Welcome his joy by dying to yourself and living humbly to serve him and others with his strength and on his grace. Church, we are the resurrection joy people. And invincibly joyful at that. No one can take our joy from us. So when we interact with each other and carry Jesus to our lost friends and our coworkers and our neighbors, we don't want anyone to smell a whiff of death on us. We want people to see that we are confident that we will be okay even if we lose everything as long as Christ keeps us. So here's something to think about this afternoon. How might your speech, attitude and activities among others this week, among others this week, best Demonstrate that your joy is in the risen Christ? How might your speech, attitude, and activities, among others, this week best demonstrate that your joy is in the risen Christ? Before going to work tomorrow, at your office, going to school, before engaging in, in things at home, prime the pump of your heart to run on gospel joy. Then the public witness that you have will be that you live on something that hardships and trials and frustrations in this life cannot touch. The gospel is always the basis for our joy. It's the foundation on which it all sits. The death and resurrection of Jesus are the historical, completed, supernatural events that have altered the reality that we live in. Any change from sorrow into joy in our heart, speech, attitude, and actions comes because the power of the gospel events that we are looking at, that Jesus did, are working in you. So, Christian, you can have joy because Jesus died for you. You can have joy because Jesus rose for you. Jesus gives you peace, Jesus gives you joy. Jesus gives you contentment. He gives stability to your life. It was for you he did these things. And it is to bring you change to your life that he did them. Power to change pours from the risen Jesus in heaven to your heart through the spirit. And to us as a church. Let's receive that change from him this week. I'm so glad we're here this morning. I'm so glad that we as a church gather every Sunday to celebrate that King Jesus lives. And he has brought his rule into our life. Keep coming back. Keep keep coming back as we commit to do, as we committed even this morning to do, to gather together, to pray for each other. Keep coming back because we all need to hear that Jesus is alive. When for the previous six days of our week, we've walked through a world that is dying. And when we leave these gatherings, do keep in mind that we bring news of Jesus alive to a dying world. What an amazing thing Jesus did in just a little while. Wow. I mean, wow. He changed our reality from sorrow to joy, from death to life. We got plenty of time. We've got plenty of opportunities together in the coming days to revel in this transformation. How sweet that every joyful moment we have in Jesus will never be taken away. Jesus tells his disciples what he's about to do will transform their life forever. His death and resurrection will completely alter their reality. Then in verses 23 and 24, he says there's something else he'll do that will transform the disciples' reality in this life. Look at verse 23. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. This is the second transformation Jesus brings through what he's going to do in a little while. Here's my point. Jesus' ascension transforms our life with god jesus's ascension transforms our life with god by ascension if you don't know that word i just mean his departure from this earth to go back where he came from back to his father in heaven so did you see truly truly i say to you it shows up again the second truly truly statement from jesus and it's a change in jesus's subject he's now teaching something else something that pertains to a different aspect of what is about to happen I think Jesus is now shifting gears to talk about what will happen after he rises. The day Jesus references at the beginning of verse 23 is a day when they'll ask nothing of Jesus because I think Jesus will no longer be with them. Because, as he said, he's going to be with the Father. The disciples will no longer interact with him in a face-to-face conversation, but in prayer with God the Father. And yet, Jesus is still focused on the disciples' experience of joy. It's there in verse 24. This is a different angle on joy than verse 22. In verse 22, the emphasis was on the permanent joy the disciples would have because Christ was raised. Here in verse 24, it's an ongoing and ever-enhancing experience of joy in life with God. A joy that can be filled. So, even though they would no longer live with Jesus on earth, the disciples would continue in a relationship with God the Father through Jesus. Making this relationship between people and the Father possible is a big reason why Jesus came to this earth. He's been talking about it all through this section. To reunite sinners like us back to the one who made us and loves us. Even though we had run away from him in our rebellion. Jesus came to end that war that we waged against God. He laid down his life to put an end to our rebellion. To bring us peace with God. He then returned to the Father. And since then, millions of people have seen their lives reconciled back to life through Christ. So as Christians, this is is fundamental to the fact that we call God our Father. Because when Jesus returned to heaven, he returned having finished the work here on earth needed to bring us back into God's family. As we've been seeing through the series, Jesus' intent on bringing us life with God. That will become even clearer as we get into chapter 17 and Jesus' prayer. It's clear in these verses. Because of Jesus, we can talk to God as our Father, know that he welcomes us, and intends to answer our requests with his gifts. Have you ever gotten a recommendation from someone to go get a service from someone else? You know, like getting your car worked on. Or you need something made and you saw it in somebody else's house and you said, Hey, and the other person's like, oh, yeah, I know the guy who did this. Here's his number. Give him a call. Person recommends it, me- recommends it to you. And then they add, tell him I sent you. You ever had that experience? Tell him Philip said I, sent, said I sent you. Well, people, why do people say that? People say that because they're expecting that their relationship with the person they're sending you to will positively influence your relationship with that person. So if they are in with the mechanic, then you'll have an in. Now, I don't know about you, but when someone tells me that, I get hopeful that their relationship is that the person will give me a deal. Which rarely happens. That thing is a different experience than when I was a college student traveling somewhere and a friend from college said, oh, my parents live in that place you're going to. You should stay with them. And my friend calls his parents and says, "I be coming. I'm not with with my friend, just on my own." And I show up. They've gotten the guest room ready. They ask me what I like for dinner, and they make it for me. My hosts deeply love their child, my friend, and because their child had a friendship with me, they took me in. Uh, this is closer to what Jesus is describing, but still limited. Because Jesus' father wasn't, in a sense, just kind of sitting back uninvolved until Jesus makes the introduction. He wasn't just sort of lounging for 33 years while Jesus was doing all the work, living the perfect life, dying the sacrificial death, rising victoriously from the grave for a bunch of sinners, as if God kind of had a grudge against us all the while. That's not really what's going on. The father instead was very involved in all that. In fact, he planned the coming adoption that would happen through the work of his son. He planned it long ago. He wrote up the story. He he communicated his love for ruined people in conversation with the son and the spirit. And then sent his only son to die to adopt us as sons and daughters of God. So when Jesus ascends back to heaven, he's not making a... Kind of like new introduction, like my college friend. And then, and then it's nice and congenial. No, he's returning with a glorious and beaming face to tell his father that they had done it. They had brought salvation. And because the, they did, the earth would soon be full of Jesus' brothers and sisters and the father's sons and daughters. That's the father you talk to in prayer, child of God. His heart is for you, inclined to you, sympathetic in your trials, elated in your joys. He is a giving father. He is not stingy. He is benevolent. He is listening. He is inviting. Talk to him. Talk to him. Jesus went back to the father to open up for us to have that relationship with him. Act on it. Step into it. Why does Jesus say to pray in his name? Says it twice. Well, it seems that Jesus is saying when we pray in his name, we have a guarantee that the father will hear and answer us. And I don't think that's because Jesus's name is like a lucky rabbit's foot or some sort of like mystical mantra. No, it's because Jesus, the person, means something to the father. He is the eternal Son of God. In the Father's view, Jesus is the righteous servant, the suffering Savior. The one the Father says is his beloved. He is the one that the Father is pleased with. He is the one the Father delights in. He is the only begotten Son. And the one who died on the altar is the Lamb who saves the lost. He is the beautiful and he is the lovely and he is the good and he is the true. He is the Son who the Father will not turn away. The one who has and always will sit right next to the Father and always have his love and attention. So to pray in Jesus' name is to invoke all... All that is so good about the father's relationship with Jesus, the son, to be transferred to our relationship with the father. It's amazing. This is what unity with God means is what Jesus has brought us into. Man, knowing how undeserving we are of that, why would we ever presume to ask for such an audacious thing? Why would we ever think that the Lord of Lords, the Almighty God, the Father of the perfect Son of God, would give two flips or two seconds to people who reject and scorned his beloved Son? Because Jesus and God are not like us, thank God. And if you come underneath the covering of his Son, he will treat you just like his Son. He will not withhold anything. Christian, believe in the love of the Father for you when you pray. Believe that he has every intention to deliver on every single promise he's made to you in Christ Jesus. Believe that when you ask for help, help's already coming. Believe that when you need strength, he's already supplying. The Father's ear hears the faintest and the briefest of cries. Trials and pains and sufferings cannot drown out your voice before our God. So what is the Father inviting us to ask for? Well, Jesus doesn't say here. I think there are clues in the passage. There's certainly a lot in this bigger section. But remember, what we do know from this passage, Jesus is saying he's going to radically differ and alter their reality by defeating death and bringing eternal life. This alone is going to bring eternally protected joy to the disciples' hearts. Jesus is saying he will soon leave and go back to his father and sit on the throne of the universe and invite us to enjoy a personal son-daughter relationship with the king. So what should we ask for? Well, on the one hand, we might say, after all he's done, we don't dare ask for anything. We don't need to ask for anything. But Jesus encourages us, ask. He tells us to ask. He tells us that the father longs to give to his children. On the other hand, we might... Ask primarily for our felt needs, food, money, advancement, circumstantial change. And to that, Jesus has told his disciples, yes, yes, your father knows you are a limited creature. He knows you're dependent on him. He knows he needs those things. Your father knows these things. He will supply those things. Yes, yes. He'll take care of that. Those are little things for God to do. When we have the ear of the king who loves us. The father is waiting to hear us ask for bigger. He's inviting us to ask for for bigger. He's inviting us to ask as excited children in response to the grand promises he's made us. So when you talk to the good king as a son or daughter, ask for a share in the kingdom. Ask for that. Ask him to spread his rule all over your life. Ask him to spread his goodness all over your neighborhood. Ask him to spread his gospel all over his world. Ask him to flood your heart with more and more of his love that changes your reality. Ask for his spirit to open our eyes to appreciate and understand the reality of life in his presence. What it's like to live under his care. What what we can know to be guided by his kind providence. Ask for permission to know him more than you do. If the name we use is Jesus, the king of kings, the father's prince, then all the kingdom is open and available to us. If you aren't already, start paying attention to what you're asking for. And what you're receiving. I found that when I see what he gives, I grow in knowing the giver who's given it. The worst thing we could do is not ask. Jesus says, prayer with our Father is the way we know ongoing and increasing joy. Because when you ask, you receive. And when you receive, you know you're the Father's child. So the way forward is prayer together. And, and praying with this emphasis. Brothers and sisters and his family that make up this church, pray for the kingdom. Pray for the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ to transform us. Pray that we would be those who seek for his Christ's kingdom and his righteousness. Pray that we would be people relentless to get wisdom. People who hunger and thirst for righteousness. That in our desire for God's kingdom to be set up on earth, we would be people to whom the kingdom is promised. People who are poor in spirit. People who are meek, pure in heart. Peacemaking people. Persecuted people who rejoice that our, our reward is in heaven. Pray for the kingdom. Man, isn't it exciting to think our life on earth could be spent growing closer and closer to our Father in prayer? This opportunity is not for us to walk away blindly hoping that some ambiguous higher power will hear us when we've hit rock bottom. God will hear us when we hit rock bottom. But this life is so much fuller than that. So much more. Jesus is ascended. And we have life with the Father. So we're drawing our time to a close. I hope you see that in a little while. Jesus came to bring massive change to this world. His death, resurrection, and ascension bring. And can continue to bring, if it hasn't already. Sweeping transformation to your life. But you must be willing. We must be willing to be changed. There is eternal joy. There is increasing joy in knowing Jesus. So I invite us now to take a moment where you are and ask God to bring his transformation to your heart and to our world. And after a few moments in silent prayer, I'll close us in prayer. Father, through the gospel of your son, our Lord Jesus Christ, bring change to our hearts. Change us in ways that show you are the powerful one and you are the loving father. Change our, our church in ways that better reflect Christ Jesus. Change our community in such a way that shows that, that Jesus is the Lord over death. We pray that resurrection joy would be characteristic of us. We pray that we would know how to transfer the weight of our sorrows to you today for those who are crushed down by them. We pray that you would bring relief to us. God, only in your gospel can such changes take place, and they have already begun. We praise you, Jesus. We pray that you would bring your kingdom and you would give us a share in it. Enable us to be your ambassadors and representatives for as long as you have us here. Looking forward to enjoying eternal life with you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.